You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Hello, Dr. Trish. Hi, Jeff. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. Especially with your face half covered. (laughs) Yes, and social distance. That's right. That's right. We are in the midst of a pandemic. Yes, we are. And uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to do a topic that uh, is the rage right now and not COVID. Correct. So today we're going to talk about telehealth, telehealth, telemedicine, which is the right word. We'll, We'll try to figure that out. That's right. There are differences. And we have a special guest. An amazing person. I don't know how much this person knows how um, affectionately I think of him or how much I um, have been impressed with his leadership through the years, but I guess he knows now. I guess I know now. Very humble. That was a very, that's a very nice intro. Yeah, I I told you uh, uh, yesterday, I go, there are a few people that I think of as great mentors and I look back and think, wow, they helped guide my life. And I'm getting to that point in my life that, where are those mentors going to be? And I realized it's time for me to step up. I need to be the mentor. You are that to me. That makes you feel any better. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Well, why don't you introduce them? You've already laid the groundwork. Let's see how you do this. This gentleman, his name is Mr. Pat Venditti. Venditti? Oh, you got it right the first time. Yeah. Doctor. His name is, he's really a doctor, but. I don't. He I doesn't go by that. that. Yeah, I haven't used that moniker in over 30 years. Doctor of what? I didn't know that part. I looked at your bio, but I didn't know that. He uh, told me to take it out. He, he's a chiropractor. I was a chiropractor from 78 through 86. And then I uh, left the profession, started doing consulting work for corporations. So, doctor, but we're not using that anymore. No, Pat's good enough. <laughs> Mr. Pat Venditti, he is the recently retired Enjoying his non-existent retirement trip (laughs) currently. (laughs) But uh, prior to your retirement, what I think uh, most people know you from is you were the executive director of BJC uh, Employee Health. Is that how you? Corporate Health. Corporate Health health Services. Corporate Health Services. So what exactly does that cover? Uh, We actually covered a wide range of things. Primarily, we were, uh, we functioned with uh, local employers uh, within about 150 miles of St. Louis. We had three occupational medicine clinics uh, that took care of the employees' injuries, uh, plus uh, pre-employment examinations, disability exams, drug screens, that type of thing, uh, rehab from the injuries. Uh, Then we uh, also took care of BJC's employees. Uh, we started a, a workers' comp department, uh, going on 16 years, where BJC's 31,000 employees and 5,000 volunteers were covered under the self-insured policy, and it was administered under us, uh, under our umbrella, uh, past 16 years. And, um, and we branched out uh, about three or four years ago into providing health care th- to 
employers uh, under their group health policy, actually not under the group health policy. So Fort Zumwalt School District was the first one that we did where we provided a clinic for their subscribers and dependents of their group health plan who could come to the clinic. Um, it was open from Monday through uh, Friday, various times, uh, and then on Saturday morning. And uh, we took care of all of their uh, acute episodics, some chronic disease management, uh, well woman, well made exam, uh, lab work, x-rays, uh, everything was free to the employee. Uh, no co-pays, no deductibles, and uh, we have been doing that now going on to about uh, going into our third year. But that, uh, that worked out really, really well. The, the focus was to try to ease the financial burden on the school district. Uh, they were spending a lot of money on their group health plan and also to ease the burden of the health uh, of the co-pays and the deductibles and all that on the employees. And um, in the first year, they reduced their group health plan cost by $5.3 million. Impressive. We're also running the Student Health Center uh, at Lindenwood, which is now closed <laughs> for the rest of the season, but we have uh, been doing that for the same thing for the students uh, on it. No cost to the students. Uh, and probably going to expand. They, now I left, but there was the plan to... Uh, develop it for fluorescent uh, Ferguson fluorescent school district also now Fort Zumwalt if I understand correctly is where you got your big um, most of your experience with telehealth or a big experience a little in bit telehealth. no we actually started it before that um, when I took over as the leader of the corporate health group I realized that telehealth had to be a part of it um, so I guess we should talk about telehealth and telemedicine because they are two different things that's so why correct. Don't, why don't uh, I turn this over to Trish? All right. So, well, here's my experience. I started a medical clinic in Haiti, and I certainly didn't have all the specialist or diagnostic equipment available for my use at the medical clinic in Haiti. And so I would Skype. This is back in the, gosh, 20, early twenty. 10, 2011. And so Skype had been around for a while. I just never utilized it unless it was a phone call with my brother overseas or something similar. But the, that technology was there. And then probably five years ago, FaceTime, Zoom, Zoom meetings, which we've done incredible. That's really been my only experience. And I am lucky enough to be associated with this great physician assistant who starting in late February, we, we anticipated there was going to be an issue. And we started um, putting into place our own telemedicine health product, which couldn't have been more timely as we'd never anticipated the current situation. So our telemedicine service is an audio and visual interaction with the patient. So it's direct clinical care, um, which is in which is just a small sub-segment of telehealth, which involves any kind of patient clinical or non-clinical care, to make it simple. And actually, if we look at the history of the, the global or broader word telehealth, it goes back a really long ways. I mean, they've oh. been doing some of these things 
obviously we're doing it a different way, but some of this stuff goes way back to the twenties or. Well, I looked up the history of telehealth, telemedicine, whatever, and it, and it goes back to ancient times. I mean, they use, I mean, all it is is communicating what's going on in a population of people or in a subgroup of people to somebody else to find out either warning them or getting information. So, I mean, the Native Americans, whenever there was a sickness in a tribe, they would send smoke signals to let everybody else know there's a problem here. That's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, the Greeks and all that, and actually tele comes from Greek. It means distant, far. So, um, and as the advances in technology and communication methods improved, telemedicine or telehealth started to improve. And I think, for the most part, uh, medicine and hospital systems have been slow to adapt to it. But this COVID is really putting a fire under everybody to say, hey, what do we do? People can't leave their homes. How are we going to communicate with them what's going on? And how are the physicians and healthcare workers going to work with them? I think um, this will permanently change Yes. Health and the way we deliver care to patients. Yep. So, Jeff, quiz. Alexander Graham Bell, when was the telephone invented? 18. Yeah. Something. 1890, something, I think. Yeah, 1876. Ah. But there was this incredibly brilliant scientist, Hugo Gernsback, huh. in 1924 who predicted in 1975 we would have teledactyl. A teledactyl system was where physicians would visually see their patients and using these long robotic arms be able to palpate or touch them and make a diagnosis and treatment plan. Wow. Gosh, he wasn't far off, was he? No, he wasn't. So he was was the, the inventor of the first radio set that could be subscribed to and sent to patients. He also invented ah. modern the magazine Modern Electronics and Science and in, ah. Invention. So it's the guy just, was, you know, these yeah, are people that time. are yeah. before so, their times. So when we started looking at telehealth, uh, I went to the IT department at BJC, and they, they had one guy, and they didn't have a platform. And that was one of the things. If you're going to communicate, you've got to be able to have uh, commonality between yourself, your physicians, uh, and your healthcare workers, and the patients. And they didn't have a platform. So we said, well, we got to, this is ridiculous. We got to find it. So we actually found one. This goes back, God, uh, let's see, eight, eight, nine years ago. And we looked at different ones, and um, there were some that were used in Africa, uh, but they did not have a good program for the, what we were looking for. Uh, and then we settled on one that uh, is called SnapMD, and I'm not sure if it's going to be continue to be called that, but it's called SnapMD, and it had an audio-visual component. Um, uh, it was mobile so that you could, and we worked with the uh, CEO who was very, very great. Uh, He visited us several times. We actually created an app with our name on it. So we used it as ZoomCare, so ZoomCare has their own app. Uh, We also adapted it uh, last year uh, when we took over BJC's employee assistance program. And when I met with them for the first time, I said, "Uh, we have to take you virtual, which is another word that you'll hear a lot about. It's called virtual care. 
Yeah, and I said, look, I've heard stories about, you know, I've seen your offices. Sometimes you get uh, in a situation with somebody who has been forced to come see you, managers telling them you've got to go see, and they're angry, and you're the only person in the room, and they're angry at you, even though you didn't do anything. So I said, so there's some risk there, and, and you don't need to be in a room with someone to counsel them. All you got to do is look at them and talk. So, so we incorporated that last year, and I have an app on my phone, still have it, for BJC's EAP. And they can hit that app. They can see who's available. Uh, they can make an appointment, or they can immediately see whoever's available. Uh, and that's worked out. That's working out great. The first month we went live with it, they had, I think, uh, something like 19 visits that were, that were virtual, by virtual appointments. And I'm sure that's go- grown since I've left. Oh, I'm sure. So, Just in the uh, last week, it's grown. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. In Zoom Care, um, uh, Zoom Care, they use it uh, for make, uh, appointments identifying what they're there for. So there's a, on the app, you can actually, there's a little questionnaire you fill out. And then the people who get that immediately, they then look at it, contact the employee, and find out whether or not this is more than needs to be happened on a virtual visit. Come in for the first time, have them see you, set it up, become an established patient. And then the end of the end, we, we have an NP at ZoomCare. And the NP can tell the employee or the patient, you know, your future visits for this type of thing for rechecks, we can do it over over the phone, or we can do it virtually, where I can see you on the screen. And uh, trying to find the medium, and we found an application, but then trying to find the visual thing. And we were given like a $3,000 monitor you know that <laughs> we looked at, and then something like this, but it was a, a eyeball, you know, to, for a camera, and we spent weeks experimenting with those devices. And the problem with the with the camera was, we were finding out that in testing it, that if I'm looking at the camera, uh, the patient on the other side doesn't see me looking at them. They think I'm looking up or to the side, but not. you don't have the eye-to-eye contact. So we ended up dumping it and found out that the best way to do it was either by a phone or by a laptop that's got... And if you look straight in your laptop at the screen, <laughs> the camera's right there. So it went from $3,000 for a monitor plus a camera and all that other stuff down to a few hundred dollars for a, for a laptop. So it suddenly got cheaper and much more effective. Which is better than the initial, I guess our experience with telemedicine would be NASA's experience yes. with treating astronauts in space. Yep. So, you know, they could do that in the early 70s. Yeah. The natural progression is that we should somehow evolve or adapt. And now we're forced to adapt to yeah. this technology. And it, and it hasn't been bad. I mean, we're, what, three, three and a half weeks in to predominantly all telehealth telehealth visits. And um, I think patients are coming around. I mean, there's certainly a learning curve, and your staff has to spend a lot of time um, educating people on browsers and settings and those kind of things. But everybody seems to be coming along. 
Well, um, statistically, by 2015, 84% of Americans had access to the internet and two-thirds of Americans had smartphones. So if you take, forgive me, mother-in-law, if you take my in-laws who have those capabilities, they're still somewhat limited. So that population has been a little bit more difficult to transition, yet they're the most appreciative, certainly at this time, having that access to trusted healthcare providers from a distance. Right. right. And that's the other barrier that we had overcome on two sides. You had to get acceptance by the provider and a lot of them very reluctant to do very, to, very reluctant. And then you had to get the medium for the, for the patient and getting them to accept the telehealth. Now the millennials, they're there, but the ex geners the traditional, uh, you know, the older, older folks, they didn't, they didn't know what to do with that. But this COVID thing is forcing everybody to get on board pretty quickly. Yes. When, you know, 70 and 80 year old fam family members are uh, initiating zoom happy hours yeah. <laughs> with their, yeah. their family members, then, you know, we're in a different era. So we looked at adding this a year ago. I mean, we were really contemplating as just a, a value add proposition to the practice. You know, we have some patients that we identified that we thought, man, those would be really good telehealth visits, chronic opioid users that we've weaned down, but they have a small amount of pills that they have to take and their pain doesn't really change much from much from month to month or year and to we, year. And we still need to touch base with them regularly to make sure yeah. things are going well. And they come from afar. Yeah. So, Two hours to say my back pain's the same as it's ever yeah. always been and I still take the same amount of medication. We looked at it and go are we really giving the best to those patients that we could? Could we do it a better way? And I will say the biggest hurdle that we've run into, and we're probably going to run into it again, is the reimbursement. Not everybody's uh, not everybody's getting on board. So let me dovetail that into kind of my understanding of the expansion of telehealth. Telehealth kind of got out there. Companies like BJC adopted it and then offered it to private corporations or private businesses as a way to a, a value proposition for their subscribers. But it it's still, until COVID, really isn't a mainstream, like, private physician office offering it to anybody else. It's really been, hey, this is something as a member of a BJC, you have this option, or if you're a ZoomWalt employee, you have this option. And I can't figure out why it's never made the leap. Like, What's the hurdle? Well, we, we ended up, um, there were 27, and it may have increased, different applications at BJC across the system. So there's 15 hospitals, two different states, uh, using some form of telemedicine. Uh, some of it may be simple from using a Honeywell system to track people in home care, do things in hospital, ICU, that type of stuff, uh, different you know, uh, diagnostic equipment that could be used and then could be accessed remotely to keep track of the, the patient. Um, trying to find a common platform that the patient and the providers could, could access. And that's the, the, you know, and that was the biggest problem. And they're still two years into it. I don't think they have a platform that's common amongst all those. So I think that's one of the issues. 
Um, uh, and then you got to look at what your purpose is. So telehealth and telemedicine, some of them have two different purposes. If you're looking the way we, the way I did, uh, as we were looking at, we are really just trying to interface with a patient who's remotely away from the office and not having them either leave their home or leave their place of work to come see us and say, how's your pain? Right. How's your, how's your motion? Can you move your arms? And they could, you could see that, you know, with, with, the, with the, you know, with the smartphones and the cameras, you could see what that is on, you know, uh, Skype or FaceTime or what have you. Uh, so that's an easier, we're coming closer and closer, closer to find readily available web applications or smart apps that providers and patients can get, have common access to. So now you gotta do, you got the internet and that's all you need. Uh, uh, from there, then you start looking at what's probably gonna come down in the future is the development of more and more diagnostic tools that be, can be placed in the home that the consumer can purchase at a fairly reasonable price so that for instance, you know, do you have a fever? Yes. Well, how do, how do we know you have a fever? Well, there I, I can see in the future you will have some kind of a common web access on a smartphone, uh, a device that you can put across your forehead tells you, but it also tells you, tells the web application it, it tracks it, it just yeah. like we do with Fitbit or or you know the Apple uh, Watch for you know walking and, and other things. Uh, sleeping if you're wearing your watch at night so those are going to be coming available and all they got to do is access that app get the share on that person's uh, record and they can see exactly what it is instead of having them come in to verify it and but prior to covid it's been fantastic my daughter has a heart condition and she was able to transmit her ekg to her cardiologist in minnesota from you know, college in Alabama. And so that's a telehealth communication device that I, again, believe will be expanded exponentially in the future, those abilities with at-home tools. The other area, too, and this is probably, uh, it's happening for us, and it's probably important for, for your practice, too, is radi radiology. So, uh, the x-ray machines now are coming out. We just installed one in St. Peter's just before I left. It's totally digital. And it goes on a cloud. Um, and I just went a couple of weeks ago. Um, I had an old injury that had surgery on my wrist, created some arthritis in there, uh, and got involved with doing some stuff. And it just started throbbing, and it wouldn't let go, wouldn't let go. And I said, oh, did I do something to it? What so I went to an urgent care not far, and um, went in. They took an X-ray. It was digital. Within ten minutes, from the time they took the X-ray, they had the X-ray not only available, which was right readily available, but they had the, the radiology report immediately. And then I could get a copy of it by just by taking pictures of it. And with these new phones, the resolution you can blow it up. You can see I could see exactly what the problem is. Um, and that's that's something that that that, that is uh, a time saving. Hundred percent. It's a it's different. And then accessing digitally films done. Yeah, years before. Correct. It's a, it's been um, 
certainly helpful from a practice standpoint, patient management standpoint, comparing films, the, the digital application and cloud application is, has been really innovative and helpful. I think that's been, when we talk to our friends in the community, other private practice groups that are going through the same thing we are, I think that's really been one of the biggest differentiating things is your ability to get your practice online and virtual as fast as possible is going to be the big difference between what practices make it through this mildly scathed. I mean, I don't, no one's going to go unscathed, but um, mildly versus potentially bankruptcy. I mean, some people will probably go into bankruptcy over this, I imagine. And um, I can remember back, I remember about four, five years ago, having heated discussions with office managers of private practice that I was in that talking about cloud-based EMRs Uh and they were the devil. Like you're crazy. You're going to give up all that control. We want to own that server. We want to put that server in the closet. And I used to look at them and go, well, everything you have is already in the cloud. This stuff's in the cloud. As soon as you submit it virtually to the insurance company, they're submitting it through the cloud to a, uh, clearinghouse that's selling it all or whatever and i said now you're responsible if the bad guys come into your door and steal that box of information that's your problem right make it someone else's problem like and uh we used to have that fight but i think about i thought about that just the other day because i'm like if we didn't have a cloud-based emr you'd you'd have to vpn it's very expensive hardware to get vpns that can control that amount of people like yep. it's hardware first to get to the VPN and then you got to find somebody to put hardware in in today's world right yep. now. And I'm like, power oh interruptions. Ooh. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And then, then you get to the, then you get to the actual service that like Pat is talking about, about when you get out there to look at the services, it's real interesting. So I, I contacted, I don't know, five or six of them right there in February. Basically, I'm not anything special. It's just that when I saw the NBA cancel their entire season or basically Ugh. shut everything down, I texted whoop, whoop. Dr. Herford <laughs> that night and I said, we got to have telehealth ready in 48 hours because yeah. I, I just can do math. And I'm like, okay, yeah. if this billion-dollar organization just said, hey, we'll forgo all this money, then they, <laughs> the things that's going to happen to our little old practice is going to be nothing. And so I said, we got to have this and we got to be ready. And so – the funny thing was, was we were not in COVID panic at that time. Right. And I can remember it was six weeks to get in several companies, six weeks to get installed. You know, one was uh, $500 per provider per month. And then it, and then all of a sudden, and I had one company contact me and I talked to him, I said, well, your price is too high or that I go, I I can't look at this like pandemic. I want to look at it from a price perspective of, after the pandemic is over, is this something we could keep going? And I go, that price, that's like almost get gouging. We could, we could afford sure. it in a pandemic because we don't have a choice. But afterwards, I don't want to have to pay that. But I don't, this but I was, also. This was pre-pandemic even. That's, we were looking at yeah. those prices going, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's so funny is that now I've had two of them circle back and send me emails and said, we've lowered our price because they've gotten smoked in the market because there's certain companies that have gone out there. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with DoxyMe. DoxyMe is probably one of the biggest, 
the biggest one that's out there now because it's free. That was their their whole gimmick was they were offering a free service. And um, DoxyMe did Zoom. over 36,000 support calls this month or really? connections. Wow. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. So I, I, I am struggling with the fact that how – I'll tell you another thing I'm I'm struggling with. I'm struggling with the fact that nobody knows anything about telemedicine when it comes to billing or documentation or examination. (laughs) So, you know, some physicians, or at least my colleagues, I I talk to them on the phone. And and to me that you're still missing an important component of a medical visit, and that's actually interacting with the patient. And you mentioned it earlier, Pat, there are certain things that are very simple to do right. examination-wise that give you a great idea about what's happening with the patient right. that don't require a face-to-face or right. in-person evaluation. And so physicians have been reluctant to explore those options. Insurance companies and um, payers have been very reluctant, including CMS. And we can right. talk about what CMS has done recently to during the COVID crisis, but... Well, let's touch on that. Okay. So let's let's talk about CMS's rules. CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid right. the, Services. The fancy name for Medicare. Right. Correct. And, and Medicaid. And Medicaid. So CMS had a rule in place for telemedicine or telehealth that said that in order for it to be paid for, it had to occur at an originating center, an originating site, I believe is the technical term. Is that Correct me if I'm wrong. Mr. Mediti, but so the the bottom line was in order to do to, true telehealth, and and then and, and if you think about it like their idea, their idea was that somebody could live in middle of nowhere, Nebraska. So rural service, one hundred percent rural design, and you could live in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. Insert state here. You could drive to a clinic. A medical assistant would take your blood pressure, take all your stuff, and then they'd put you in a room and hand you an. an an iPad that runs some approved app and you could vigil, you could have a virtual consult with a specialist in Minnesota, for instance. So now let's, now let's put that same visit in the eye in the context of COVID. It, it dies immediately. Right. The shelter in place. (laughs) And so that was the first rule that you were alluding to that they took away with uh, the the COVID uh, post post COVID you know, Medicare Act or presidential executive order right. took all those those things away. But I, I which look, which allowed patients to stay in their own homes to undergo those same sort of health services. And the other thing that it took away was there was a big burden on, and it still is quite confusing to people. What is HIPAA compliant legal telehealth software? What does it really look like? There's some where it's two-way live video. There's some where you can take a video, then basically, for lack of a better word, email it through a proprietary system. A provider can look at it again, record a response, and it goes back and forth. They call it asynchronous. And then there's true just telephone, no no video. And there's been a lot of confusion about, okay, well, what meets the standard? Like, is it? And, and now I think we've gotten that part somewhat hammered out, like, two-way live video with consent of the patient with consent and they have to initiate the visit that is an interesting little little buzzword that they put in there so physicians who are calling the patients 
that doesn't actually meet the criteria for a telemedicine visit. I'm no Medicaid or Medicare lawyer, but as I read it, it specifically says patient initiated contact. So they have to do something to start the visit. So you, because their whole, I, I read about this is that they're the, one of the biggest risks or reasons that it didn't get adopted is they're so afraid that f- providers are going to somehow abuse this system and do all these unnecessary telehealth visits. And I think to myself, how could that ever, in what world would that really happen? <laughs> right, like, Jeff, you've right. heard of Medicare fraud. It goes on all the time. Well, yeah. well, but even that, like Medicare fraud is so different to me because it's like, well, Granny came in for a two-way bypass and we are, are uh, a two-way and we booked her for, or we billed for a quad because nobody could tell or so that kind of crazy take stuff. Take that, that to a non-surgical situation where a physician who's sitting somewhere can make multiple phone calls and charge for office visits. That's, I think, the that was the purpose of the, putting in the patient initiation of. So the concept okay. was that you couldn't just some doctor couldn't pick up his the his or her phone book of patients and just start calling them and. Hey, Char- hey, charging a visit. Hey, Susan, that. how you doing today? Oh, well, I'm great. Thanks for calling me, Doc. Okay, great. There's a bill for 50 correct. Bucks. Okay, correct. All right. But now. doesn't the now did the law get changed that the patient has to initiate the telephone or the tele televideo? So it? that's still in place. I believe that's still so in place. They run the if they're initiating. I mean, they can check that. They can turn. You know, if you're doing it through your cell phone, those records can be investigated. They can see. Uh, I mean, I can look at my phone. I look at my phone. I go, Oh, I made that call because there's a red arrow going out, and I made it versus a green arrow coming in that came to me. So they really run because there's a digital footprint. Absolutely. So I, th- you know, those who are not savvy on what can be done, and those who are you know corrupt or greedy can probably try to do it, but they're not going to get away with it in the long run. They're going to get caught because the record, the digital record's there. And it's not something that they can just, you know, shred. Correct. Right. It's their in service, the evil cloud. Yeah. Well, their service <laughs> provider has all that information. And the government, federal government, all they have to do is initiate, oh, you're with Sprint. Troop, we're just going to, you know, subpoena Sprint for your medical, for your uh, phone records. So the telemedicine services in general that are being utilized in ours in particular the, the digital footprint is still there, and it's a e, it's an email address that um, allows the patient to contact to the audiovisual right. interface. I, I will say that the biggest hurdle is all the misinformation. I mean, uh, we have we have a really great billing group that that gives us advice on. I mean, and, and let me interject this. I don't know if people know that all the people that listen to our podcast know that. Medicine's a little bit different than other billing things because if you bill incorrectly, it's actually illegal in a lot. There isn't like, oh, I mismarked the 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 can of green beans by two dollars, and it's a simple error. If we bill incorrectly, it causes this whole whirlwind of potential risk and fraud and all these things. And you don't with get federal, paid. That too. and, and the, paid. <laughs> especially with federal payers, though, it's a big right. deal. Correct. It is a big deal. And so. The, the biggest hurdle we had was even after we kind of got a system in place, it was, I mean, 
180 degrees different information from one billing company person to the next. Like, oh no. I mean, I remember getting into a, a little tiff with one of the people and she was like, it has to be recorded and you have to store it all. And I was thinking to myself, that's the most insane thing ever. I don't want to record. Nobody should want their visits recorded no. in any right. way, shape, or form. Yeah, that is correct. No, too high a risk of hackers. Yeah. And so, but that was the belief was that it had to be stored digitally so you could call up this. And that was three weeks ago that that information was being propagated to pay, to physicians or groups trying to get it going. And then you needed certain modifiers or but modifiers or special codes attached to the regular code in order to identify the visit and get reimbursed at that visit level. And to some degree, CMS has been proactive with the Emergency Act in allowing some leniency to providers, but that it still has to be, one, identified as a telemedicine visit or telehealth if you're not doing an audio and visual interface. And you still have to add a certain modifier to identify it as such. The patient has to approve or agree to that visit. And then they've relaxed a little bit, so the patients can do it in the in their homes. They can interact with the physician, and the visit is exactly the same. It's identified as the same level visit with the same level of reimbursement um, as an in-office visit, and that's with CMS. And we have yet to hear, nor do we know how other other insurance carriers are going to handle it. We suspect they're going to be to follow. CMS guidelines, but we don't know. And insurance companies never fail to surprise me, regardless of pandemic, regardless of what we're trying to do from regulatory, from a regulatory and safety standpoint, they may just say, sorry. So <laughs> that, when we started looking at this, one of the things in terms of reimbursement we had to go look for is to see was the states that we do business in, where our clinics are, does that state have a parity law? And I know that's on a thing, but the parity law, supposedly, the way I originally read the parity law was that a tele, telemedicine visit would be the same as an in-office visit, that you could bill at the same code and get a reimbursement the same way you would get for an in-office visit because you're providing the same level of service. I don't know in your practice, though, how is that pan out? So because collection of fees is on a, a time delay, typically 60 right. to 90 days after you see the patient, we don't know yet. So the catch with the parity law is that you're right. Missouri has a parity law. They technically cannot pay less for telehealth. However, the catch is each specific plan can determine if they want to cover telehealth. So, <laughs> so Blue Cross Blue Shield may have 500 plans. I mean, who, who the heck knows how many different plans they have? And each plan can carve out or not carve out telehealth. Now, those that have carved it out, tough luck that we don't cover that. Um, just like any other specialty that they could carve out, those that do cover it, um, it can't, it'll be reimbursed at the regular rate. Now, the catch is, and Dr. Herford and I have had this discussion is, Okay, how do you know? And I said, well, the only way we'd know is to pull every contract that we're currently contracted with of every health insurance and dig through every paragraph until we find 
that than make a giant spreadsheet. But at the end of the day, I don't know in their current pandemic if it really matters because patients just need care and right. you got to take care and of them. That's not that we're not still attempting to try to do our due diligence. We would we have not neglected any of our patients, nor would we um, in this time. But it's an interesting phenomenon that I don't think is going to be accepted the same way by all providers. No, no. Especially the, they'll find ways of not paying either at all or full value. Should patients pay their office copay if they do a telemedicine service? Uh, that depends on the plan, but the answer probably should be sure. Yes, because, I, I mean, again, it's not because you're getting this face-to-face right. or different value for that particular visit because you're assuming the value is the same. Well, the interesting thing, right, would be that technically, by the letter of the contract that those insurance companies make us sign, we have to charge that we because we do not have that authority once we sign those contracts to make that determination. Because that's a contract between the patient and their insurance company and not us with the... Well, then the records have to go back, too, because they have to be applied towards their deductibles. That's correct. An interesting statistic is, that I read went kind of to justify. It was actually, um, I saw this when we were first looking at telemedicine visits because there are companies out there that started pre-COVID. And the estimated average cost to a patient in lost time only, not medical costs, not co-pays, was $43 per visit with a physician. That's just lost time, driving, waiting in the waiting room, and getting seen. So I... I thought, well, wow, that that's the cost, and it actually justifies a copay in my mind. Sure. More so than anything else. What about new patient versus follow-up patient visits? And that was interesting in some of the CMS restrictions. These were follow-up visits with an established right. patient. Right. Now, they waived that during this pandemic, but in the future... What do we see? Do we see new patient visits and follow-up va- patient visits being equally acceptable in a telemedicine world? Uh, try to look into the future. We don't know what the future is going to hold. It's going to be, di- it's a different world now, and it's going to be a different world once everything gets lifted. Well, we brought you in here because you're brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to call you Pat Hugo. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I, I think they're going to have to, because if telemedicine takes off like it probably should, uh, a lot of it is, like you said, we're probably going to see a decrease in the number of healthcare providers out there. They aren't going to survive. Some of the hospitals may not survive this. Some practices won't survive this because they just, you know, heck, XFL went under just recently. Right. I mean, we're going to see uh, a lot of uh, bankruptcies and, and companies going out. So there's already a dearth of primary care providers out there, especially rurally. So those individuals are going to have to, they're not going to come in for a primary visit, you know, to become a new patient, drive 100 miles to come see it, come in, when they could do it over the phone. They could do it, you know, telemedic, you know, with uh, audiovisual. And so it almost has to be, you'd be able to see new patients audiovisually. I, w- I would argue that in our practice, pain, pain management, physical medicine, the new patients sometimes are even easier via telehealth because 
like our practice specifically, we get a lot of referrals from outside specialists. So they were referring for different procedures or anything. The seeing the touching the patient part makes up such a small part of that interaction. They it's the reviewing of their records, reviewing of their imaging, their procedures they've had before, the medications they're on. So most of it's like a discussion anyway, as far as touching them, feeling them, you know, like a post-lumbar fusion, failed back syndrome, chronic pain patient. And a, and they can't, and you can see they're not moving very well. Well, I can almost predict what their palpatory or right. touching exam exactly. is going to be like. Exactly. Interesting going forward with those same, same thoughts, the lack of traditional providers, the lack or the change in a typical interaction with patients, where do we say artificial intelligence falling into telemedicine? Again, this is the area I'm really intrigued with, and, and Jeff knows that. But this that could be an additional component to telehealth, telemedicine in the future that really changes American medicine. It, it, it will because medicine's changing. Healthcare has to, is changing. The complexity. Uh, nobody, you know, I mean, the, the encyclopedic knowledge that's out there cannot be stored in any one provider's brain. So AI can, uh, along yeah, except party excluded, <laughs> uh, but AI, especially with different type of devices that are going to be coming available, wearable devices that can pick up certain types of uh, signs from an individual, temperature, range of motion, that type of stuff, should be able to give the provider a, a differential of what to look for and what to ask for to kind of verify what their thinking is. When that provider could be a computer. Well, I told Dr. Herford this story. I got in trouble during PA school. So I went to PA school at the University of Washington in Seattle. Really great medical school. And we trained alongside the, the medical students. And I was in this lecture one time, and this professor was uh, one of the professors from the medical school in health informatics and something or another. And uh, he gave this lecture on the future of healthcare and everything else. And I raised my hand and I said, I'm confused by the fact that everything we're being taught is being taught in an algorithm fashion. You know, the, do you have high blood pressure? Yes. Move to next. next. And I said, do you foresee the future where we eliminate all of our jobs as healthcare providers because we've built algorithms and they don't need healthcare providers? You just need algorithms. And I got scolded and I was told that was the stupidest thing I'd ever. And I said, well, think about it. You could have a kiosk right now and walk in and say, I have a fever. Okay. Do you have a cough? Yes. Okay. Do you, I mean, you, it's, have you traveled outside the country? But it's how we train medicine in medicine. Everything's trained in algorithms. Like that's, there's a COVID algorithm when you walk into the ER. That's exactly right. The algorithm is, is king in, in AI because that's how Google, uh, they had a better algorithm than any other search engine. So the algorithm, the problem is, and this kind of goes back to some of my background and my experience. I got a degree in psych. I think I learned most of my psychology when I was a bartender for four and a half years. <laughs> that right. is probably true. Yeah. Very true. And uh, in your area, because you deal a lot with pain and chronic pain, I don't think there's an AI out there, and I might hopefully to be proven wrong, 
that's going to not only take care of the physical signs, high blood pressure, temperature, range of motion, all that type of stuff, but how you're going to differentiate whether the pain is organic, where there's a stimuli to the nociceptors that produces that pain, or whether or not it is psychological, where there's a psychological, sometimes unconscious, psychological influence over the symptoms of pain or, or over the complaint of pain. And some of them, uh, like I said, some of it's unconscious. Where are you going to get the AI for that? That's where my job remains safe, where a traditional algorithmic-based medical practice is probably going to be overwhelmed with AI well, I mean, potential. It's really the key of why do private practices, to some extent, why do pra- private practices exist versus, um, say, big college or medical school that they have practiced heavy evidence-based medicine. There's still a lot of private practices because they don't follow the algorithm 100% because they examine the patient's full situation. No, no, Bob, you don't need an MRI because your situ- your algorithm says not to get an MRI. But you know what? You are freaked out that you might have cancer because you're cousin sister brother just died of it and that doesn't fit the algorithm but that fits the person and this goes into one of the parts of telemedicine that is maybe a con a a disadvantage not a con is a fake but um and that that interaction there are subtle clues with a patient who's right in front of you versus in a visual screen that you might miss so i will grant that there are limitations to a full um, examination of a patient. I've missed it. I missed the, it's not near as emotionally fulfilling to see a full day of telemedicine patients as it is, um, in office, seeing, touching people, talking to them. Just, I, I mean, you get your interaction, which is good, but there is a, there is something too, like seeing patients and you know, the one or two yeah. patients that give you a big hug and say, hey, thanks, or... No more hugs. No, no hugs. No, no more hugs, hugs no handshaking. Well, I don't think anybody could have predicted the global response to this. Because if you look at the mechanism, you know, and there's various... Yeah, it's a novel coronavirus. It's the first time it's been in a, in, in a human community. Uh, yeah, highly contagious, but... You know, the mortality rates are not as high as what they that you would expect in a global crisis. Exactly. And, and thank goodness. Yes, thank goodness. And uh, you have to be careful what you read on the Internet. So I usually tend not to read anything on the Internet unless it's coming out of a reputable scientific journal. But um, I, th- I think the COVID has awakened globally, which is the first time that I can never remember that I've ever seen anything like this, where there's a global response. And I think the one thing that's probably more pushing a lot of these things into the future is the fear that this has generated. I mean, and that will be a lingering fear. It will be. As soon as they lift some of these social distancing restrictions, I don't believe we're going to go back to, nope. at least not for a long time, life as it used to be. It's interesting watching you know, what has happening in countries where they didn't um, put into effect the social distancing requirements or shut down um, 
bigger events like we did or, or like other countries did as early or late, however you want to interpret the response of countries, but, um, and what's going to happen. And we still don't know. It's the oh. same thing with immunity. We're trying to get the um, immunity tests in the, the office. They're very quick. You know, some of them still have to be, their accuracy has to be predicted. But even though you may have antibodies to COVID-19, do you have any lasting immunity? We still, we don't even know the answer to that. But so just to kind of review, we have multiple pros to telemedicine. It's efficient, certainly in a a timeframe that we're working um, within a pandemic. It's safe. Um, The restrictions, regulatory restrictions by insurance companies have been lessened right now. And I think that will continue. I do. I do think there are going to be some transitioning. It's going to be be, hard to put that back in place, I think. And it's cost effective. I mean, if insurance companies look at it from a a money standpoint, it is really cost effective. Let me ask this question because Pat has a real interesting insight on this. And he spent his world in corporate health. Right. Um, That's something that I've been hung up on, and I'd love to know your perspective. So we take care of a lot of patients, injured workers and workers' compensation patients. So those patients are unique because they're forced to go to the doctor. Correct. Um, They have to show up. Uh, And I I said to Dr. Herford early on, I said, I don't understand why any – I would think if I was a work comp provider, I'd be like, yes, 100% we want telehealth because we want to document what these – the injuries are, but we do not want to be responsible for any of the exposure. The state of Illinois jumped the gun on that yesterday and passed a law um, basically saying that any of these essential healthcare workers, if they get COVID, it is considered a work-related injury unless you can prove that they got it somewhere else, which is going to be almost impossible. And so they passed a mandate now making that. And I said, I don't understand why all employers wouldn't look at it that way because of the risk. But then I, I started thinking deeper into it. I would think telehealth would be incredibly interesting for just all these other work comp employer or work comp providers, because you don't have to have your employee drive to work or drive to the appointment. You don't have to travel them travel super far in a way. And you can actually, if the employee's still at work, supervise that they made the visit. Yeah. And, but yet still, even in mainstream, it's not, it hasn't been picked up yet. So we did, we did a couple of things. We started to do that. That was one of the intentions was, you know, why have them come in, especially on rechecks, why have them come in when they can just, you know, if you've got an office for privacy, give them access to an iPad, call in, have an appointment, boom, and then the provider sees it. The biggest problem I had on both sides Adoption by the provider, adoption by the employer. And just getting them to say, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. They just could not see past whatever barriers they think uh, was preventing them from, from accepting it. And I'm like, this is crazy. So when they did the construction project on King's Highway, that was a $750 million project. We were involved on the clinical side and on the work comp side. So we oversaw the medical. Um, and in there, we had nurses on site and we established a medium video, uh, audio video, so that the first time they came in to Barnes Care, everybody had to come to us first. If it wasn't an emergency, they came to us first. And then, um, so there was a triage being done by the nurse. 
any rechecks that would be done by the nurse in their office on site, on the construction site, to a provider on our site. And we had one provider who accepted, she was young, so she was more acceptive of these things, where the older providers said, no, no, I want anything to do with it. And we did a lot of those. We did like 70 or 80 televisits just for that. And they didn't have to, and the, the nice thing about it was whenever somebody had to come to the clinic, a supervisor had to drive them there, wait for them, and then bring them back. So you had lost productivity of two people for every time they came in. So that was, was a great, efficient way of doing it. It wasn't as large as I would have liked to have been, but still 70 visits to 70 visits. I think sometimes people hear these discussions and go, oh, lost productivity and that the rich get richer or whatever. But I think that if you've lived in this world long enough, you realize it affects everybody because all those monies and dollars get passed along to everything. So, I mean, it's not just one guy with the big house on the hill that made a lot more money. All those expenses get passed along to all of us in the form of our insurance deductibles or any, I mean, Everything, the cost of the goods we sell. there. Yeah, the patient buying. or the client's still paying for the gas to get to those visits. Right. That's not. Right. So yeah. I would say that I was probably one of those reluctant providers um, before this crisis. And since then, I've talked with Jeff. This is definitely to stay in our practice. And I can't imagine why there won't be a telemedicine national health care system that is somehow developed and run um, by a, a, you know, a, a group, and hopefully it's a private group as opposed to a, a right. governmental right. group, that will allow that interface for patients to do that. And then if they need specialist care or local care, then that's, that's uh, established or spread out. Because it is, there is a, a definite... Um, Another uh, potential advantage of telemedicine is that life career balance for some physicians. So sure. say you're in the twilight of your career and you want to continue to practice medicine, telemedicine gives you that option if you you know, are visiting your grandchildren in whatever. We actually look for those guys because I figured they'd be perfect. They've got the knowledge. They just don't have the physical ability to come into an office and, and work that and we couldn't find them they, well because they were older they didn't they didn't understand how to adopt that new technology yet. well i'm i'm going to adopt it what about career life balance is going to be in a whole different thing now i mean we're going to have a massive we have massive unemployment people are going to go to work that have never maybe haven't been in the workforce like maybe you had single income families and then one person lost their job and then everybody's gonna have to get new jobs which mean both parents might have to go back to work or and, or what uh, about all these children that are going to be born in nine months <laughs> oh my goodness speaking of so, which, and the we moms. just had a brand new grandson <gasps> born april 1st congratulations Congra and his name him. since his he's name now is everett joseph everett joseph and we have not seen him physically yet we probably won't for probably another several weeks well graduation thank you yeah. i had nothing to do with it <laughs> <laughs> we were just a recipient thank so we get to see uh pictures that they're posted we see some facetime that we just in fact that was a little bit late because we were facetime with my granddaughter and we said okay where's uh where's everett and that's go, fantastic yeah. but um 
So I have a question. Yes. To you guys, because this is something I've been thinking about. And one of the hardest things, you can have all the in, you've put together a telehealth here. I can foresee um, marketing it to the public that you accept virtual visits, telehealth visits. Marketing that is going to be important, but it's going to be a challenge. So as I drive down Highway 40 or whatever, and you see these big billboards, and you see a lot, there are so many medical billboards up there. It's the very end thing right now it in is, St. Louis. It is. It is for everybody, whether it's the hospitals or practices or groups or what have you. I can definitely see the change of virtual visits and being given the web ad or whatever so that people can just access it, create an account, become a patient virtually, and you may never see them physically. We have it. We are a hundred. Uh, we are to that point. Um, our portal, a lot of places have a portal, which is really nice, and patients can go online. Our portal has an entire half of it that we never really turned on that you can at SOAR, let's just say in the next week, I haven't turned it all on yet, but in the next week, the idea is that you could never be seen here. You could sign up. You could make your appointment. You could do it all. You do it all online, never talking to a person, and then do a virtual visit. And it'll handle all of your insurance questions. It'll handle handle all of your medical past medical history. So we're we're ready for that. Marketing at your rights challenge. I don't. We haven't marketed anything in the last. I, and few weeks. I will tell you that it has been a bit challenging to combine the in-office visits with a telemedicine clinic on this at, during the same time frame. So moving forward, as we're having to see um, some patients in the office and more of those since we've delayed follow-up care, that how do you balance a in-office visit patient with a telemedicine patient who's scheduled, you know, twenty minutes later? Because, as we all know, and probably the biggest complaint in medical offices is it never runs on time. So that'll be something we navigate better in the future. Um, and then the, the fun part about some of these medical telemedicine platforms are, are the virtual waiting rooms. What can yes. patients do? So you could do education. You could do telehealth in your telemedicine visit, but during that waiting waiting time in the telemedicine virtual waiting room. I think patients we've, we've had to roll out the portal um, a lot faster than I wanted to. Um, And, but I think that overall these patients are really starting to like the fact that one, for whatever reason, I don't see, it doesn't feel as daunting um, to them online as it does because they can do it when they're comfortable um, as, as it does when they're sitting here in the office. But the adoption of the forms and getting that stuff, it's gone pretty good. It has been nice. And that it's nice, nice interact. Like now this information's collected that's actually usable, which is a really nice thing because, you know, patients, their number one complaint in our, in our practice um, is why do I have to list my medications over and over and over right. again? And it's a big deal for us because medications are a big part of oh, what sure. we do. And, and, uh, the reality was because all these times they've been filling things out, there hasn't been a system to actually put it in other than a human and the portals weren't really good enough. Well, now the portal is. So now they don't have to list them every time. Now that's one 
big thing that we've improved is you can go online and do it in one time and just update it as you need to update it and you don't have to worry about it. That, is, that has been nice. Check a box that says no updates, and, which and I guess, anyway. And just ensure patients that it's secure. I guess, again, going back to the mother-in-law example, she's fearful of the internet and that somehow somebody's going to be able to reach through the World Wide Web or the cloud and steal all their financial information or all the health information, which would allow them to access their financial information somehow. So, and that I think most of the um, telemedicine platforms have, um, in order to be acceptable, have to ensure a patient security. That's that joke I made to Hereford in the first week we did it. The big learning curve. Patients, you know, you you log in and you could see them. They can't see you, and you're trying to negotiate browser settings. And I said, "Well, man, for 15 years, everybody's been putting tape over the lens of their laptop yeah. camera." Now, that, <laughs> in the last week, oh. we've told them to tear them all off, and they don't know how any of that works. And all those laptops that were created to take away the camera, they're like, "Throw them out!" Throw them out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the laptop so. camera has been invaluable, uh, especially when we're doing the EAP counseling. Yeah, that's an excellent re- an excellent utilization of telemedicine telehealth prior to COVID was in the psychology, um, behavioral health, mental health services department. Early adoption, again, lack of really there have been a lack of good providers locally, right. so it, being able to expand out of the local market has been good and is probably a good example of what to do to expand telemedicine to people who want to access that after COVID-19 for more generalized medical questions or orthopedic questions and treatment. Well, doctor. My favorite part, Jeff. Mr. Venditti, this was left off of his outline. He doesn't know. Doesn't know. He might know, but because he's very smart. This, it's time for a section that we like to call getting hammered. (laughs) (laughs) So does that mean, does that include wine or some other... It can. <laughs> it's whatever you want. but It's COVID. We can do whatever we want now. <laughs> as long as we keep distance. That's right. And we're not yeah. sharing the glass. So getting hammered. It's a series of five questions. You've not seen them. They are... Uh, they These are not brain-taxing questions. The idea is answer them... Uh, truthfully and with you know the first thing that comes to your mind we might make fun of you that's okay it's possible yeah hey in the past (laughs) months since i retired that's become a common (laughs) you found out how inadequate you are working around the home oh yeah Yeah. oh yeah (laughs) man been there every day yes the the, the career life balance has not been nearly as great as you hoped Oh, my goodness. I know. All right. Question number one. If you could meet and have dinner with any person who ever lived, who would it be and why? Einstein. And the reason why is because Einstein, um, his inquisitive mind, how he could look at things and just ask questions. He don't always have the answers. But he had just to go into the mind of a genius like that, 
who knew how to ask the questions. And I try to tell my grandkids in education, continue to question. If you can come up with good questions, your knowledge would get better. So I think that would, because he, he would, I mean, I've seen several biographies and stuff and movies about him. And uh, just to see, just to get a little insight into the mind of why and how he questioned everything. Good answer. Perfect answer. I would expect none, none less than that. I agree. All right. Question number two. What is your favorite movie? Uh, I would have said Gandhi was a favorite movie. Uh, but more recently, in recent times, I've come to just absolutely love this movie. Uh, yesterday. If you've not seen it. I have not seen it. Oh, you've got to see it. Uh, it is about, um, it's based upon the music of the Beatles. So Oh, yes. And they, he wakes up and he's. He's the, he is the only person <laughs> in the world. Yeah. So. I've got to see he's that. Right, yeah, you have to see it. He's a struggling artist, musician, singer, and happens is he's driving he's riding his bike all of a sudden for 12 seconds the entire world loses energy all electricity is all powers gone he gets hit by a bus he wakes up and he doesn't know this but um, he goes to sit down with his friends and they say play us a new song and he plays yesterday 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 <laughs> and they all look at him because it's so different than what he used to play, that they can't believe, where did this come from? And he goes, what? I didn't write this. This was written by the Beatles. And they go, who? <laughs> and that's the premise, is that suddenly the Beatles are gone. And I had you but pegged for the, dodgeball. <laughs> oh, no. No, no not dodgeball. Uh, I couldn't wait for you. We went to go see it, loved it. Loved every part of the movie. I just thought it was very ingenious. And then I was waiting for it to come out on Netflix or Prime or what have you. And I've already seen it twice. Movie theaters. We'll lose movie well, theaters. They're gone. Forget that. I mean, they're going to do direct, which they should yeah. anyway, direct to home viewing. Yep. They'll make money. Question number three. Of all the conspiracy theories that are out there, is there one that you think is real? Oh, you're going to have to be way more specific. There's too many conspiracy theories out there. Do you believe any of them? Um, I, I don't know. I don't really jump on top of any theory that goes into conspiracy because there's too many oddballs who just jump onto that stuff and they add things and you can't sift out all of what is real versus what's been added on and stuff. So, But if you... If there's a theory that is there alien life, you can't look into the universe. And I love the science of all that and quantum and all that. And look at the trillions of galaxies, I'm not talking stars, galaxies. And to think that we are so unique that we're the only life form in the entire universe is just arrogant of the human species. Same so, conversation I had two nights ago with my family. I agree. Yeah, 100%. Is, yeah, there is. Now, will it look like us? Who knows? We're just, I like to watch a lot of the uh, nature shows, uh, Wonderstruck, uh, BBC America, and Planet Earth, and all those different ones. 
and how they had one of their things was on the ocean, and uh, and I was telling my wife, I said, you know, as we got deeper and deeper into the ocean, and you started uncovering all of these weird, unusual-looking monsters that are down there, I said, you know, we think of life form as us, and as what we see on a daily basis, but what what life form is and how unique the earth is compared to what we know from our own ability to go see and touch and you know right thing. so i agree 100 percent. all right question number four if you could take a time machine to any time in the world what, past or present past or present where and why uh past definitely renaissance italy no one said that yet. No? I see you with the turkey leg. <laughs> not a Renaissance fair. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, not that. No, not that Renaissance. Renaissance. 87, no, Renaissance no, fair, Fulton, that. Missouri. No, That's where not, I go. Not that Renaissance. <laughs> I'm talk, Renaissance Italy is just the rebirth of art, science, uh, trying to meet people like Da Vinci and some of the I mean, Creative, just, yeah. artistic. Yes, uh, when my wife and I went to Italy, um, this is back in '98. I just have a I had a blast in Florence, just to be able to see the artwork, the architecture, the, the stand in a cathedral, and look down and realize, oh my God, I am standing on the grave of Galileo Galilei, and That's there's right. the tombstones and right Michelangelo's there. work is all around it. Yes. All around you. Yeah. Yes, I, I yeah. agree. Question number five. If it's shareable, what is the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? Whoa. If you haven't done it, you certainly in retirement need to do it. Well, probably the most spontaneous thing I ever did, I did it two days ago. Um, we can't do anything. I let, My wife and I sold our house four years ago. Um, let's see. We moved in in 2016. So, yeah, it'll be four years in July. We moved to a 55-plus active lifestyle community. It's out in Lake St. Louis. It's called the Heritage of Hawk Ridge. Uh, it's about 300, 400 houses. And uh, the pickleball, tennis, golf, I mean, there's a whole lot of activities, scores of clubs and stuff. And my wife has been retired uh, going on four years. So she's had access to all that, and all of that is gone. It's all closed. Uh, we can still play golf, but again, social distancing, and uh, where we would have these parties all the time and gatherings, that's all gone. All these clubs, they can't meet. Uh, pickleball's closed, tennis is closed, and my wife has been wanting to play pickleball, and I only got to play pickleball when they had their annual picnic. Um, and I can see how much fun it is. Um, and it is a workout. So, um, and I took a walk. So there, I got a couple of routes through the sub through the subdivision, and I can get like a three and a half, four mile work uh, workout. And as I'm walking, uh, I got this idea. I said, you know, I could probably I have a three car garage. I said, I could probably create a pickleball court in the garage. So <laughs> I came home. <laughs> And I'm sitting there, and we get one of her friends who plays, they play pickleball, 
they show us a picture of her husband uh, with a pickleball thing, and he had a little string along in his garage, and they did pickleball. I said, ah, I was just thinking of that. I had just had that idea today. So I went out in the garage, cleared everything out, swept it all out, and taped off a pickleball court that <laughs> is half the size of a regular. A regular one's 22 feet by 40, 20, something like 22 by 44 feet. Ours is, is 12 feet by 22 feet. And if you know anything about pickleball, and then I put a little kind of a net there. And it's, so I got it all taped off. <laughs> and so my wife had gone out at least every day and we've gone about 30 to 40 minutes, and it's, you know, we got the, we take all the cars, we put them out in the, out on the driveway, shut down the garage doors, turn on the lights, uh, and it's still cold in there, and we'll work up a sweat. So yesterday, her friend came over, and they uh, were in it, and today, while I'm here, she has another friend come over, and they're going to play, and basically, it's you're not going to be able to play a game because it's still not, uh, but they volley, a lot. And that was spontaneous. I just decided, oh, let's just, you know, I got nothing else to do. Let's do it. <laughs> so that well, that's spontaneous. Yeah, Perfect is. answer. That's good. Well, Mr. Venditti, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight. We've uh, really appreciated having you here. Thank you. I know that uh, you mean a lot to Dr. Herford. She's said it uh, multiple times over the year. Oh, she's meant a lot to us. Until next time, this has been another episode of Source Sessions. This is Jeff Todd and Dr. Trish.